the Bible alone. It was one of the key ideas of the 16th century Christian Reformation. But what does that mean? We saw in episode 1 that theology ought to be biblical, but what about the Holy Spirit? What's his role in revealing God's truth to us? And what about the church? Does the church have authority to make statements about what is true or false? What do we make of creeds, confessions, and the decisions of church councils? That's what we're thinking about in today's episode of Thinking Theology. We're looking at what the Bible says about where ultimate authority lies and how that relates to the Spirit and the Church. Hi, my name's Carl Denick. I'm a pastor, theologian, writer, and Bible college lecturer. Welcome to Thinking Theology, a podcast where we think about theology, the Bible, and the Christian life, not just for the sake of it, but so we can love God more with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sola Scriptura, or the Bible alone, was one of the big ideas at the heart of the Reformation. Arguably, it was the idea of the Bible alone being the source book of theology that drove much of the theological reform of the Reformation. It was the return to the Bible that enabled the return to sound doctrine. The problem was that the Catholic Church held that there were in effect two authorities, the Bible but also church tradition, or what the Catholics call the magisterium. The magisterium contains both the solemn judgment of the church, as well as the ordinary and universal teaching of the church. In other words, the magisterium is the doctrines that have been decreed to be true by the Catholic Church, but also the doctrinal tradition that has built up over time as part of the ordinary teaching of the church. In fact, in the first official response to Luther's 95 Theses, one Catholic scholar wrote, Whoever does not hold fast to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and of the Pope as the infallible rule of faith is a heretic. The Catholic Church continues to hold that position. In the First Vatican Council in 1870, it decreed, All those things are to be believed with divine and Catholic faith which are contained in the Word of God. But they also include everything written down or handed down and which the church, either by a solemn judgment or by her ordinary and universal magisterium, proposes for belief as having been divinely revealed. In other words, if the Catholic Church decrees it, you have to believe it. In fact, the Vatican Council goes on to point out that without believing those things decreed by the church, it's impossible to be justified. The Catholic Catechism states, The Church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honoured with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. There are, however, a number of significant problems with that view. For instance, the Catholic Church has used that to define as infallible doctrines the idea that Mary was born without sin and that she was taken up to heaven bodily at the end of her life, neither of which have any support from the Bible, and more problematically, both of which deny other central biblical doctrines. 
But the greatest problem stems from the fact that the Catholic Church has adopted the error for which Jesus rebuked the religious leaders of his day. In Mark 7, Jesus gets into a debate with some of the religious leaders because Jesus' disciples aren't following the Jewish leaders' traditions. Jesus says to them, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. They were putting their own ideas above God's ideas, and perhaps the most startling thing was that they didn't even realise they were doing it. They were completely blind to the fact. It's so easy for that to happen. The way that often works is that one generation comes up with an idea of something helpful for growing in the Christian life, the next generation comes and continues it out of habit, and the third generation makes it a rule for how we know and love God, and before we know it, the Bible has been completely left behind. And so it's important that we routinely ask ourselves the question, what is it we listen to in terms of shaping our lives for God? Do we listen to the Bible as the only sufficient rule of faith and life, or do we listen to something else? The anti-authoritarianism that pervades much of Western society means it's unlikely that most Western evangelical Christians will fall victim to holding on to traditional teachings of the church. But we are quite likely, I think, to put the traditions of our culture above the teachings of the Bible. We see that clearly in the area of sexual identity. The clear teachings of the Bible have been subjugated to the teachings of culture. The Reformers rightly pushed back on the Catholic Church adding tradition to the Bible. But in reacting against the error of the Catholic Church, some went to the other extreme and ironically ended up in much the same situation. In contrast to the Reformers' commitment to the Bible alone and their rejection of tradition, some have emphasised the immediate witness of the Holy Spirit. One of the clearest examples of that comes from a century after the Reformation in the Quaker movement. The Quaker movement arose in England in the 1600s, but one of their key beliefs was and is the inner light, which refers to the direct internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Because of that, they believe in continuing revelation, so much so that although they still use the Bible, they consider the Bible a secondary rule subordinate to the Spirit. Some people today still take that kind of approach, even if they have nothing to do with the Quaker movement. That is, they put the immediate witness of the Spirit over and above the Bible. But the Bible itself doesn't encourage us to do that. For instance, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Jesus is talking about his words, the words he was speaking then and there, the words written down for us in Matthew's Gospel. It's those words that people need to listen to and put into practice. It's those words that are authoritative. So too the writer of Hebrews begins his sermon saying, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. 
In the past, God spoke through the prophets, but now he's spoken through Jesus. The writer of Hebrews doesn't say, in the past, God spoke through the prophets, then he spoke through Jesus, and now he's spoken through the Spirit. He says, now God has spoken through Jesus. Jesus is the high point of God's self-revelation. But at the end of the day, the same problem afflicts both those who add tradition to the Bible as afflicts those who add individual spiritual revelation. Both add something to God's word and give to either tradition or individual spiritual experience an authority they don't have. The result is that we're left with no certainty about what the truth really is. As the English reformer Thomas Cranmer wrote, If there were any word of God besides the scripture, we could never be certain of God's word. And if we be uncertain of God's word, the devil might bring in among us a new word, a new doctrine, a new faith, a new church, a new God, yes, himself to be God. If the church and the Christian faith did not stay itself upon the word of God certain, as upon a sure and strong foundation, no man could know whether he had a right faith and whether he were in the true church of Christ or in the synagogue of Satan. Rather than tradition and direct inspiration of the Spirit being our authority on faith and life, it is the Bible, Paul says, that is able to make us wise for salvation and to teach and equip us for every good work. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And again, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Bible teaches us that the Bible itself is our sole authority for faith and life. But what's the role of the Spirit then, and what's the role of church tradition or church councils or church creeds? Evangelical Christians have sometimes been accused of believing the Trinity to be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. But is that fair? Maybe for some people that's a fair criticism. But one of the deep convictions of the Reformers was that the Spirit and the Word go together. The Bible is the work of the Spirit. As the pastor and theologian Peter Adam has written, the Bible is God's words written for his people by his Spirit about his Son. In fact, the Bible tells us that the work of the Spirit is twofold. Paul says in 2 Timothy that God's word in the Bible is breathed out by God. It's breathed out by God through the Spirit. 2 Peter 1 says the prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In theology, we call that inspiration. The Holy Spirit inspired the original authors of the Bible to write the words such that the words that they wrote are the very words of God, even though those words are communicated in the style and through the personality of the individual authors. But that work of inspiration is now complete. 
The work of the Holy Spirit for us then is to enable us to understand the words that he has already inspired through the writers of the Bible. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Understanding God's words comes through the Spirit of God. The Spirit teaches us, and the Spirit gives us understanding. So the Holy Spirit's work is twofold. The Spirit inspired the Bible, and now he causes us to understand the very words he inspired. Calvin writes, God did not bring forth his word among men for the sake of momentary display, intending at the coming of his Spirit to abolish it. Rather, he sent down the same Spirit by whose power he had dispensed the word to complete his work by the efficacious confirmation of the word. None of that is to deny that the Holy Spirit can prompt us or convict us of certain things, but all those impressions and thoughts that we might have need to be tested against God's most sure and certain word in the Bible. It's worth saying, too, that the Spirit does other things besides enabling us to understand the Bible. He unites us with Jesus, fills us with the fruit of the Spirit, empowers us for mission and ministry. But the Spirit's role with respect to the Bible was to inspire it and now to enable us to understand it. So the Bible teaches us that the Bible itself is our sole authority for faith and life. And the Spirit who inspired the Bible is the same Spirit who now enables us to understand the Bible. But finally then, what about church tradition or the decisions of church councils or the statements of creeds or confessions? What do we do with those? If the Bible is our sole authority, what's the place of the church? Throughout the history of the church, creeds have been developed and church leaders have often gathered together to make joint statements on what they understand the truth of the Bible to be. There's the Apostles' Creed, which, despite the title, was not written by the Apostles, but was developed in the centuries afterwards. It was written to summarise the Christian faith. There's the Nicene Creed, which came out of the Council of Nicaea in 325. It was written to combat those who denied that Jesus was God. There's the Chalcedonian Definition, which was the result of the Council of Chalcedon in 451. It was written to spell out what it means to say that Jesus is both God and man. So too, in the period of the Reformation and afterwards, people and church councils devised confessional statements to summarise the Bible's teaching. Confessions like the 39 Articles or the Westminster Confession of Faith. What do we make of documents like those? One of the problems with those documents is that sometimes they're wrong, or at the very least, they're confusingly worded. Take, for instance, the Apostles' Creed. It states that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. 
The last part of that line, he descended into hell, is largely based on an obscure verse in 1 Peter 3.18 that speaks about Jesus proclaiming to the spirits in prison. That verse was understood at the time to mean that Jesus descended into hell, but it's quite unlikely that the verse really means that, and most Bible scholars accept that today. After all, Jesus said to the thief on the cross that the same day the thief would be with Jesus in paradise. But that line is still present in most modern forms of the creed. There are ways of reinterpreting it to make better sense. So one Reformation document called the Heidelberg Catechism explains that line to mean that Jesus suffered the inexpressible anguish, pains and terrors of hell on the cross. Well, fair enough. But that's not really what the line originally meant, nor is that meaning especially clear to modern readers of the creed. The problem is that while most theologians and pastors know what the issue is, most people on the street don't. In that sense, a document that was written for the pastoral purpose of teaching the basics of the Christian faith has ended up partly misleading people. But even at their best, creeds, confessions and the decisions of church councils still contain flaws because the people who make them are flawed and sinful human beings. Only in the Bible has God spoken clearly and reliably. That said, creeds and confessions and church councils do have one benefit, and it's a benefit that shouldn't be underrated. And that is that in them, the church speaks. That is, if I write a book and publish it, or if I make a podcast, it might be a very good book, or it might be a very bad book. But at the end of the day, it's the work of just one person, me. So too I can pull off my shelf massive books that summarise the theological ideas of some great Christian thinkers, Calvin, Barvink, Carson, Frame. But they too are just the work of one person. But when I look at a creed or a confession or the decision of a church council, what I'm often reading is the work of many people working together prayerfully to understand and explain God's word accurately. In that sense, creeds and confessions do speak with an authority greater than any one theologian. They might still be wrong, and the lone theologian might still be right. But we ought to give the works of the church greater respect and more careful attention. Nevertheless, at the end of the day, the rule by which we judge a creed and the rule by which we judge a theologian is the same rule by which we judge everything. God's sure and certain word in the Bible. The Bible which the Holy Spirit inspired and which the Holy Spirit now helps us to understand. Well, that's all we have time for in this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Next time, we'll be thinking about what the Bible is and where it comes from. Who wrote it? How did we end up with the 66 books that it contains? And what about some of those other books like The Wisdom of Solomon or The Gospel of Thomas? What do we do about those? Please join me then.